Welcome to episode 3373, and I didn't say the thing a lot of you guys like me to say, so I'll say it now. And we are live. Uh, we are live. For those of you that uh, never check out a live feed, if you want to, you always can find out the next upcoming stream as long as I've updated it. It's not the last one. At TSPCLive.com, you can find all the different places that we stream, uh, description of what's up and coming, cool artwork that we did for the uh, thumbnail for the episode and all that good stuff. And if you're like, I'm going to forget that, get on the Telegram group or channel, either one. And that way, every day, Monday through Thursday, when I live stream, you'll get, you know, within an hour or even earlier, sometimes two hours early, a little notice. Hey, man, here's what's going to be going on today because the live is more fun with you in it. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, two weeks ago, I did a show called Butcher Your Budget, and I talked about cutting meat and cutting meat specifically to save money. We talked about specifically four uh, beef subprimals, which are large hunks of meat that we can break down into steaks and roasts and grind and all kinds of stuff. And I really focused mostly on beef on that episode. I did that because, number one, it is the most expensive protein that most people buy. Lamb will definitely give it a run for its money. But in general, most people, when you think pro protein, you're thinking chicken, pork, and beef. So beef is expensive. It also has some really surprisingly amazing cuts that can be gotten off of things like a shoulder clod or a chuck roll or things like that. We talked about things like... Chuck Eye Steaks, also known as Delmonico Steaks, Sierra Steaks, stuff like that. All these really cool things. And so that's where I wanted to lead off with. When I put that show together, I was actually thinking about things like pork loins and stuff. And I realized, like, this show is going to be like five hours long if I try to put all this stuff in it. So I decided I would do some stuff that's more chicken, pork, and still some beef related in a later show. That's what we're going to do today. More meat cutting and money-saving techniques. We're also going to talk a little bit today about curing meats and some easy ways to cure meats. We'll talk about pastrama again, uh, which is basically like the Turkish version of pastrami. We talked about that a little bit yesterday, if you made yesterday's show. We'll talk about some other ways of curing meat, including biltong. And we'll talk about how this really allows you to elevate things. Because my goal today is to show you ways that you can eat really good for 25 to 75% less money. And so instead of, let's say, going out and buying the cheapest, disgusting, gross, tubed ground beef for you know three bucks a pound and eating that, and it's garbage, guys. It's absolute crap. Nobody that works in a store that actually cuts meat will eat that shit. Instead of eating that for $3 a pound and ending up with a yield that's crap, because when they say it's 80-20, it's not. It's more like 65-45 or 65-35. It's just so much gross fat in that stuff. You can maybe spend four or five bucks and eat something that's worth 12, 14, $16 or more a pound. That's what I want to do today. And that's what we're going to do today. Before I do that, we do have some sponsors to take care of and neither one of them have anything to do with me. I guess you could find where to buy your meat using the internet. And our first sponsor today, AbovePhone.com. AbovePhone lets you take back technology for yourself. Get yourself a really great phone 
and get yourself access to a completely open marketplace for apps. If there are apps that you need to run for whatever reason that are only available through like the Google Play Store or stuff like that, you can actually create a little jail for them. So they only do their tracking and all their BS when you turn them on. Otherwise, they're sequestered out in the middle of nowhere, and you can run all your other great stuff. You can take back technology for yourself. You can stop being tracked with everything you do and everywhere you go with Above Phone. They're really an awesome sponsor. They've been very good to us. They've given a great discount to guys. 75 bucks off any phone at AbovePhone.com if you're an MSB member. Check them out today if you haven't done so yet. And since we're talking about taking back our technology today, uh, let's also talk about Start9 Sovereign Computing. This is something that you really should have in your life. It is a bit of an expensive product, but you get 9% off as an MSB member. Start9 Embassy servers let you completely control everything, access your data from anywhere in the world, completely secure and completely private. Stop using cloud computing. That's just a way of saying Amazon's computer or Google's computer or Facebook's computer. That's all. It, there is no cloud. There's somebody else's computer. That means they control your data, your access to it. They're a risk with that data, or they might just shut off your ability to access it. Take everything back with Start9. You can run a Bitcoin node. You can run a Lightning node. You can run end-to-end -end encrypted text messaging for your family with a Start9 embassy server. It is really a great idea to consider getting this into your household if you haven't done so yet, and you're like, I don't know, I don't know, man, will I be able to do this? Look, guys, if I can do it, if I can do it, you can do it. I promise you. If if I can run something, I am not the tech guy that people think that I am. All right. With that, let's dig into this and start out with what my goals are today, right? What am I really trying to accomplish? One, I want to remove any fear that you might have about doing this stuff, working with me, curing me using salt as a cure for meat instead of pink salt that actually is toxic if it's over. I'm not afraid of nitrates and nitrites, but if it's overused, if you actually use too much, it can be very toxic, right? So we don't really need to do that. There's people that are afraid if they touch meat, they're going to die or something. I don't know. I was watching a, a, a video recently, and a guy was explaining how to take the membrane off the back of, of ribs. And I'm like, why do you even do that? And it's because we have a society today of like kids that can't even eat chicken on a bone. Like I didn't until a few years ago, I didn't even know that was a thing. Like that's why we have all this boneless shit. They're afraid of bones. Um, meat is the most pure ancestral food that humans have. We've been eating meat in various forms since we were smart enough to realize if we killed another animal, there was meat inside it. There is no reason to be afraid of meat. There are certain uh, sanitation things you should do, like washing your hands cleaning surfaces, et cetera. But there's no reason to be intimidated by this. And don't be afraid also that I'm going to buy this big chunk of meat, and when I cut it up, I'm going to mess it up. Like I've said, the type of stuff that we're talking about working with, most of it, if you cubed it up and threw it in a grinder or made stew meat out of it, you'd still be ahead. So if you make a mistake, it's not that big a deal. And it's not as hard as people think. Again, I want you to be able to eat top quality for 25 to 75% less. I want you to be able to take a $2.39 a pound uh, pork loin and turn it into Canadian bacon or turn it into uh, pastrama and, and cure it and, and have a product that you would pay $20, $25 a pound for. And even with all the spices and the trim and everything, you're still into it for like three, four bucks. That, that's to me, that's living really well on a lot less money. I also want to inspire you to be creative in the kitchen. I think America, cooking-wise, we're in a rut. 
we have like two classes of people as a general population. We have the box people. Everything they eat comes in a box or a package and microwaved and whatever. That's probably not you or you wouldn't listen to an episode like this. But then the other side is people, you know, they eat steaks, they eat chops, they eat chicken, they eat burgers. And it's pretty much take the steak, cook the steak, eat the steak, and that's it. And maybe there's a side, right? Uh, maybe there's some potatoes and some veg or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm cooking ribeyes tonight. I'm going to put them in my salamander broiler that you guys got me at the 15-year the uh, anniversary celebration. I'm going to char the hell out of them. They're going to be delicious. I'm going to love eating them. But the other night... We had some New York strips out, and what I ended up doing was slicing them on the bias, doing a really cool marinade, and then we were going to do them as fajitas, and Dorothy realized that she didn't have uh, the low-carb tortillas that she eats because I just don't even do it. I ended up mixing them with cauliflower rice and kind of blending that marinade into it. It was freaking fantastic. So not everything needs to be just thrown as a chunk of meat in a pan. That's a great way to go, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And the more creative we can get with things – and the more ways we can kind of do things a little bit differently, the cooler we can we can uh, the cooler the experience we can have culinarily. I think food is a huge part of our lives. We eat two or three times a day, you know, and a lot of people eat maybe snacks that they really don't need to be eating, but you know we eat every day, and it is a, a part of how you know. Recently, I did a show about the situation with the economy and downward class migration. One of the ways that we personally judge our quality of life is the quality of the food that we eat. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I feel pretty good. Like once in a while, we go out to a really nice restaurant. We go to a place called Fix, F-I-X-E. If you're ever in Fort Worth, uh, it's in the Clear Fork area. It's totally worth going to. And when I'm sitting there eating one of their deviled eggs, so much better than mine, with golden trout roe on it, I feel pretty good about myself in that moment. I'm not going to judge my whole life on it. But if we can elevate our food in our homes, we can elevate that lifestyle quotient. And if we can do it at a 60, 70 percent discount, then maybe we could do it a lot instead of just rarely and on special occasions. So let's start off with some really cool, simple things you can do and save literally I'm mean, just a ton of money. I want to start out with one of the best deals on the planet. And again, I am talking conventional meat today. I get that. And what I said before still uh, uh, from the last episode still uh, applies today. Whatever you do, you're going to have a base price and a production price. In other words, the price of the raw material versus the price somebody did the work for you. And that differential is going to be similar. So you might pay more, but you're still going to have the same kind of differential. So if you want to do all pastured meats and all, great. It's certainly a better way to go in many instances. But with pork, because we're going to talk about some things today. It may not always be. It may not always be if you want to do certain things with them because U.S. domestic pork is incredibly safe to work with for curing, and we'll talk about that more later. But the whole pork loin at Costco, it sells for $2.34 a pound. They're about two foot long. They're about as big around as my forearm or maybe even a little bit bigger than that, more like my bicep up on the sirloin end. Breaking one down can be as simple as just make cuts. Just cut center cut pork chops. You're going to have two really, actually three totally different pork chops, but they're all delicious. You're going to have from the sirloin end, which is the back end, kind of a little bit of that loin is actually attached to the sirloin. And so they're going to be a little bit bigger around, and they're going to be 
a little less premium, if you want to call them that. Then as you come forward from there and you get into the area that would be your New York strip on a cow, you get your true center cut pork chops. And then you move up into the rib section where they're more like a ribeye and they have a cap to them and the meat is usually a little darker red. And I think all three of those cuts are fantastic. So you could just do that. I went to Albertson's website. How much are boneless pork chops at Albertson's? Depending on the cut, et cetera, five to seven bucks versus $2.34 a pound. Those loins have almost no waste on them. There's not really much silver skin on them. The fat that's on them is perfectly good fat the way that it is. If you want to trim some of it and use it for something else, you can. But pretty much you can just cut them into chops or roasts. And if we go at the base price of five bucks, it's 53% savings just by buying that one big loin. And because it's so inexpensive, and the loins are kind of a modest-sized thing, most people can afford to go buy one of those. And so it's a great starting point. It was one I really wanted to bring into the last episode, but, again, that was going to be really long, so I didn't do it. The other thing you can do is if you use chicken thigh instead of wing, this sounds stupid at this point, but you can actually save quite a bit of money. Uh, I want to show you something here. This is, uh, well, no, I don't have the video of it. Okay, so I'll have that up. I'm not going to worry about it. I, I follow this dude named Meat Dad on TikTok. And he was you know, going to this deli, and he's out in California, so it's even more expensive. And freaking chicken wings were $6.99, $7.99, and even sometimes more per pound for wings. Now, there's a lot of stuff like this. There's a lot of these things that we... You know, years ago were considered kind of like peasant food, throwaway food, and it, they became really popular, chicken wings being one of them. There were a lot of people that, like, they didn't even think about eating the wing of the chicken. And, of course, now we have whole restaurants that are built on this. And as inflation's hit, you know, they're now selling freaking chicken wings for almost as much money as some cuts of beef. And even when I looked, um, there was – there was about $4 a pound was about the cheapest wings I could find locally here. Four bucks a pound for chicken wings. I can find chicken thigh for a dollar a pound anywhere. So how does this, how does this work out? First of all, the thigh tastes better in the way. Second of all, there's less waste with the thigh. And all you do is you take your thigh, you lay it bone side up, skin side down, and you make three, you make two cuts to make three pieces. You cut an end off each side and you've got a bone in piece and two bone out pieces. Then cook them like chicken wings. They taste better, in my opinion. You leave the skin on them, so you get that nice, crispy skin. You take your ones that are boneless, you can put them on skewers, maybe put them two skewers and space them out. Treat them just like wings. Cook them however you cook your wings. Now, you want a little tip on chicken. And I'm going to show you something here in a bit that I do with chicken that I, I do this hack with. Use a light dusting of baking powder on chicken skin and like so i'll grill chicken with that little bit of baking powder and i'm talking like a big thing of wings or legs or thighs or whatever i'm using maybe a tablespoon to two tablespoons depending on how much and i'm mixing that with all my other seasoning and i'm massaging it into the skin you will get you will swear to god that you fried that chicken how crispy that skin will come out and instead of trying to have to batter it now, you're using a very small amount of carbohydrate. I think the baking powder I use has something like seven carbs to a tablespoon. So even if I use two tablespoons, that's 14 carbs spread out on a meal that's going to be, you know, it's, you're, you're going to be looking at two or three 
for when you're eating it. it it's, it's so fantastic to use that little hack. But use thighs instead of wings. That's four bucks a pound down to about a dollar. So that's, that's, that's 75% less. Drumsticks can be had for about 50 cents to a dollar a pound, depending on where you uh, buy them. 50 cents to a dollar a pound. Now, how do you get them for 50 cents? Well, you go buy a 40-pound case of drumsticks at Costco at a business center. But even just chicken at Costco in a bolt pack, drumsticks are about a dollar a pound. What do you do with these drumsticks? I'm going to play this, and I'm going to come back into the room here while I'm playing this and make sure that you're not hearing not wrong window. Uh, I'm going to play this, and hopefully there's no audio on it, so everybody tell me. You guys can see that. Uh, let me know in the live chat if, if there's audio, but I think I've, I've worked out how to deal with this so that you don't get audio talking over me. But I'm doing indirect heat on the grill with chicken legs in this video. You see, I just turned that one over and see how it's split open. So all you do is you take one side of the leg, you take your knife, you cut down to the bone and you start acting like you're going to take the meat off the bone of the leg. But you only go about halfway and then you spread it out. They cook beautifully like this the entire one side is all skin so you can finish them with that skin side up so if you've ever done wings when you flip them right no matter what you do the downside always gets a little bit uh soggy compared to the upside so in this way you are only and i mean you are only uh, doing skin when you're when you're on that upside to finish so no matter how many times you turn them, you can finish them on that upside. These came out fantastic. By the way, a little extra hack. Um, the little foil pack that you guys saw for just a second. Inside, there are two heads of garlic with the tops cut off left whole. Put a little oil on them or tallow or butter and put them over the heat and roast that garlic. What I did with these wings, when they were finished, I took that garlic and I squeezed it into a bowl and I made a, a, a baste with uh, Parmesan cheese and roasted garlic. And then I brushed the wings at the end and finished them that way. That was pretty freaking spectacular. Saved a little bit of that so you could put it on the other side right when you ate it. So I'd rather eat what you're looking at on my screen if you're on the video than, than wings any day. And again, we're looking at 75% or less the cost of what wings are going for now. Because what's happened is everything that's popular has gone up in, in ridiculous levels of price. Um, I mentioned thighs a, a little bit ago. So I wanted to kind of let you guys know about that too. There is an incredible deal you can get. You don't have to have any kind of, you know, other than a Costco membership. If you have a Costco membership and you have a Costco business center near you, now I have to drive about 35 miles to mine. Not only can you get, uh, chicken legs at 50 cents a pound if you buy a 40-pound case. You can buy a 40-pound case of chicken thigh, 84 cents a pound, 84 cents a pound. And I know some of you are sitting here going, wait, wait a minute, 40 pounds of chicken thighs, bro, bro, I don't need 40 pounds of freaking chicken thigh. Talk to some friends at work. Split a case. Split it in thirds. Split it, split it in quarters. And go in on one together. But here's some ideas that you would you could do with 40 pounds of chicken thighs. How about you break it into three separate things? 
Now, again, you might want to split this up among people. You may not want to do this to all of them, but here's what I do when we have a lot of chicken thigh around. I take my knife and I debone. I make boneless chicken thigh cutlets and I de-skin, not because I don't want the skin, because the skin is special. So I might leave some with the skin on. I might leave some with the bone in, but I'll take some portion of them and you just pull the skin off. Then you take your knife, you cut the bone out and you make three piles. Skin, boneless thigh cutlets, and bones. What do you think you do with the, the, the chicken meat? Well, you do whatever you want to. I end up packing that into enough for two full portions, maybe a little extra in individual packages for Dorothy and me. And I, you know, I vacuum seal it using my chamber packing, label it what it is, date it in the freezer it goes. What about all that skin? You think I'm throwing that away? Hell no. That is one of the most delicious things in the world. This is what I like to do with skin. I take the skin and I lay it on a cooling rack, <coughs> like for cookies. When a cookie's done, you put it on a cooling rack or bread, you put it on a cooling rack. The cooling racks nest perfectly into a half sheet tray. So I'll take two sheet trays with cooling racks. I'll lay the skin bumpy side up on those cooling racks, season it with whatever I want. Like you can make it kind of go Tex-Mex style with some salt, garlic, and chili powder. You can put a little cumin there. You can go any direction you want with it. Take it and throw it in the oven at 350 degrees and just bake it until it crisps up. Now you've got chicken chicharrones. Now you can just eat them like snacks. You, When you make a chicken meal, you take a knife after they're crisp and you cut them into ribbons and you put them on top of it. You put them on salads. You do whatever you want to with it, but now you've got this whole other resource. Now the bones. You don't know what to do with the bones. When you're ready to make stock, throw all the bones into the oven roast them until they're brown, and make a bone stock. So now you've taken this one thing, and you've made three things. You've made meat that can, you know, you can make whole thigh cutlets on the grill. You can make kebabs. You can make stir fry. You can do whatever you want with them. And this is why when I'm doing something that's simple and small like chicken thighs, I tend to not, if like, okay, let's cut this one for stir fry, whatever. Just freeze it. They're nice and flat now. They freeze. They'll thaw quickly because they're not a big lump anymore. Put them in a vacuum seal bag, label them, and, and, and freeze them. And when you take them out, if you're like, I want stir fry tonight or I want kebabs, like cut them up then. It only takes a few minutes. And that way, because you can always cut it later, but you can't put it back together unless you want to play with meat glue like we talked about yesterday, right? So that's another little hack. Again, 40-pound case, 84 cents a pound. And even, like I said, even the uh, – the stuff in packages at Costco's, you know, buck and a half, way cheaper than breast, way cheaper than uh, wings are now, which is really kind of ridiculous, but it is what it is. Um, how about making your own deli roast beef? So roast beef, here's, I looked up deli sliced roast beef today. The cheapest I could find was 12 bucks for deli cold cuts. Come on, this is a common man's freaking thing, isn't it? Like, isn't the most common man's lunch ever a sandwich? A couple pieces of bread or a roll, a little bit of veg maybe, tomato and lettuce, some cheese, and some cold cuts. Ham, roast beef, pastrami, whatever. Like, $12 a pound for sliced roast beef. That's ridiculous. Well, you can buy Eye of Round. For $4.30 a pound. Whole eye of round, untrimmed at Costco. 
you're going to take some trim off. There's not a lot of trim on an eye of round. There really isn't. There's some silver skin. It weighs almost nothing. There's a little bit of fat. Call it five bucks. Even at five bucks, it's a 58% discount to make your own roast beef. What I want to show you guys now, and again, hopefully I'll do this without any sound coming in, because, I, again, I think I've got this figured out for TikTok videos anyway. But this is Meat Dad, and what he's doing, and the reason he's slicing this with a knife, guys, is because I I don't know how this guy tolerates the shit he deals with. He's got like 800,000 followers on TikTok. He's totally worth following. And uh, he'll put these videos out trying to help people and show them how to save money, talking about a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today. And he'll get somebody that comes in there, now everybody has millions of dollars to buy meat slicers and shit like that, right? Like you can buy a low-end meat slicer for 100 bucks; It'll pay for itself pretty quickly. But basically, he gives you this procedure. He tells you exactly how to calculate it, exactly how to season it. You can watch the video with the audio in the show notes. You can go look at it later. But basically, you put it in the oven at a temperature – you do it for a certain amount of time per pound. So you weigh it and you put it in there. And when that time is up, you shut the oven off and you leave it closed. You let it rest and you end up with what you're seeing now. That's gorgeous roast beef from an eye around. Put it on a meat slicer if you have one. Use a sharp knife if you don't. You've just gone from spending 12 to 20 bucks a pound to 5 bucks, And it's a better product. It's a better product. Uh, Aaron says... I'm on Connect. I'm in Connecticut, and roast beef deli slice is seventeen dollars and forty nine cents a pound. Seventeen dollars and forty nine cents a pound for a product that I personally don't even think is as good as what you can make for yourself. So that's another just simple thing that you can do. And again, when you're cutting this meat, when you're trimming this meat. There's this, another thing that that guy, Meat Dad, deals with. These constant people. But you, you're going to pay just as much because it's not trimmed. And by the time you throw all away, first of all, don't throw it away. Second of all, no, you're not. Well, the stores wouldn't make any money doing any meat cutting and processing. So there's just a lot of people, it seems like, in this world today that they, they love problems. They love bitching. They love complaining. You give them a solution. They bitch about the solution and say it's not a real solution, even though they haven't done anything. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, – Another thing this guy talks about all the time, and I've talked about this for years, is just breaking down a whole chicken. Just breaking down. Learn to break down a chicken. There's about three or four different ways to do it. Watch some videos. Decide the way that you are most comfortable doing. Some people take the whole back and thigh on one thing and then split that in half, and you have two leg quarters with a piece of the back on it. Some people take the legs off, hopefully, with the thigh as a quarter, and hopefully take that beautiful oyster out of the back, kind of bone that out. I don't care how you do it. I just care that you do it. Then you can take your, your 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 leg and your thigh apart. You deep you uh, you debone your breast. You take your wings off. You take your tips off. You take all like your back, your wing tips, all that stuff. Use that to make stock. But let me tell you how this hat this this breaks down. This isn't that big of a deal for me because I do not eat a lot of white meat chicken breast. I'm not huge on it. This is the part that everybody loves though, right? And everybody pays a premium for. It. If you go look. At two bone, boneless breasts, skinless usually, right? And you price that. And you price a chicken whole with about the same size breasts. They will be within a dollar or less of each other. Often, the whole chicken will be a few pennies or a couple dimes less than just the breast. What does this mean? 
instead of just going to percentage, what does this mean? What it means, I buy a whole chicken. If I was going to buy the breast, I just paid for the breast the same price, roughly. I get two legs, two thighs, and two wings, and stock for free. That's the way to look at that. And again, I know some of you, like, you don't want to eat factory chicken or whatever. I get it. I understand. I empathize. Trust me. But it doesn't matter. If you get pastured birds, you're still going to pay less in general for whole birds than you are for parted out birds. You still have the same differential between the product that somebody else did the work for you on and the product that you did the work for on yourself. Um, here's another great piece of meat that is a tremendous deal at Costco. I bet many of you have seen these, and maybe you didn't know what to do with them or whatever, which is why you've never bought them. They sell a twin pack of uh, Boston butts, which is pork shoulder, right? It's the pork shoulder, boneless. The price of that meat is $2.24 a pound, $2.24, and there's two in a package. They tend to average somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30 pounds for one package, Okay, there'll be about 15 pounds a piece. This is the whole top shoulder with the blade removed. If you go to the business center, they also sell the blade in and it costs a little bit less a pound. It's not enough to really care about, in my opinion. So you have this huge hunk of pork and most people think, well, what do you do with it? You season it up, you throw it on the smoker, you make a pork roast. It's a fantastic idea. We'll get back to it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's delicious. It's delicious. And if you look at what you're paying for brisket right now, you might prefer to smoke a pork roast than a brisket, especially when you look at how much waste in fat there is on a brisket. We can only do so much with fat unless we have lean to go with it for grind. We can make towel, I guess. That's about it. But it is actually a beautiful piece of meat to take. You can call them chops or you can call them steaks. To me, they look more like steaks. But when you get that thing out of the package and clean it up a bit, because it's going to be really wet. That's the one thing about these cuts that are in these bags, right? There's a lot of, uh, like, it's really myoglobin. People call it blood and moisture. So you get it cleaned up so you're not splagging shit everywhere. You go and you open it where they took the blade out. And you'll have a big side and a thin side. The, th the thin side will be really loose, kind of mushy. Not Mushy's the wrong word. It's not real firm. And then the other side will be, most of it will be firm. Take your knife and just take the thin side off, clean up the other side, trim some fat, get it the way you want it, and just start taking steaks out of it. Take steaks out of it, and when you get odd pieces and whatever, move it to the side. You'll get a ton of beautiful, and I like to cut them thick, hunks of pork, a little bit of intermuscular fat, most of the fat's on the outside, if you do this with a shoulder of beef, it's pretty tough. Pigs are a lot more tender of an animal. These things don't need anything special. Season them how you like them. Hot heat, nice char, on the grill, under the broiler, what have you. Fantastic. And to me, they actually taste better than like the loin because there's a little more fat in them. They're a little less likely to get dried out. So you're eating something that, you know, is, is like a $7 a pound product for a couple bucks. Now, you take all the stuff to the side, and you can either cube it up and make stew, what have you, make kebabs, whatever. It's all fine for that, or you take it all and you grind it. Now, you have incredibly good ground pork. Now, the cheapest ground pork I could find at a grocery store near me, Albertsons, 
$4 a pound, and I wouldn't eat it. Just looking at it, I wouldn't eat it. The good ground pork that I would eat is 6 bucks a pound versus two and change. Now, what I actually really like about this, I like to use ground pork in my chili. And I am always able to find, if I want it, ground beef that is coarse ground. I never find coarse ground pork at the grocery store, ever. When I grind my pork, I grind, it's a, like a chuck wagon wheel, I think is what they call the disc. Really nice. It makes great sausage grind, too. So, again, we're at something like you can buy in bulk, but you're not going to have to break the bank to buy one of these. Again, it's only a couple dollars a pound. So even like 60 pounds, uh, I'm sorry, even like 30 pounds is only 60 bucks. And you're eating for weeks on that if you break it apart right. You can make it into roasts as well. Um, Aaron's saying Vietnamese and Chinese recipes use those cuts a lot. Costco has a good price on pork belly. And it's a ton of food, soy sauce, braised pork belly. Yeah, the pork belly is a great deal at Costco. And I haven't noticed that they charge you anything to slice it. So I've seen it in big, it looks like bacon that's not cured. Big, thick slices. I did two years ago when I spoke for um, Anarchapoco, but I did it remotely. We had a watch party here. I taught. So I got some packages of the pre-sliced pork belly. I did a basic cure with jalapeno, uh, powdered jalapeno on it. And then I roasted that like bacon. It was freaking amazing. And that stuff's so thick that I was like, we need a slab per person or a rasher per person. Most people ate a half of one. And they're like, it's so rich they couldn't eat anymore. Uh, but Aaron's also right. Like a lot of these, the, the pork shoulder is just beautiful for a lot of Asian type pork dishes as well. Um, now, we mentioned how expensive brisket has gotten. So brisket at Costco untrimmed is now about four bucks a pound to me this is insane there is a lot of fat on an untrimmed brisket and sometimes you really don't know how i want to say bad the fat cap is until you get working on it i've had one where i bet you half the weight was and i leave fat on a brisket trust me about half of the weight was was fat that had to be trimmed so you take and you, you smoke one of these, and it's an amazing pulled pork. It's just so tender. It's so easy to do. But the other thing you can do, because not everybody's trying to feed a million people, right? You cut that flap off. You do grind with it. You take the, the more solid part. Maybe you take a couple steaks off it till you get the size pork roast you want to roast or smoke. Get some butcher's twine. Learn to do a butcher's knot and tie it up. You could make two roasts out of it easily, depending on how many people you want to feed each time. This is a great roast to smoke, because that's what everybody does. But it's also a great roast to just season it up, put it in the oven, kind of a low and slow roast in the oven until it's done, and stop cooking your pork to 165 degrees. We're going to talk about trichinosis in a bit, how overburdened the thread is. But the, the, the FDA finally admitted that if you bring pork to 137 degrees, there ain't no trichinosis could live through it, even if it was there, even though the odds that it's there from domestic pork is incredibly low today. Incredibly low. And if you freeze that meat down to five degrees Fahrenheit for 20 days, you can forget about it as well. So we'll talk about that a bit more when we get into curing. But stop cooking pork to like this ridiculous temperature. If you have a sous vide machine, take that sucker, season it up, put it at 137 in there for two to three hours. 
That's what I did at the pork loins you guys are going to be eating at the workshop. And uh, it's just fantastic. And it's so much better if we don't overcook it. Stop being afraid of meat. It's not going to hurt you. Um, let's talk about something else. Like, this goes something totally different. It totally gross some people out now. Raw fish. Raw fish. Is it safe? Well, it depends. Um, again, freezing, there are guidelines for it. But if you freeze uh, fish long enough, it pretty much kills anything that could be in it. Again, five degrees Fahrenheit is kind of the number. That's the number because you need to check to be sure. But most of our chest freezers, deep freezers, home freezers, etc., some of them are adjustable, but they kind of default to five degrees Fahrenheit. So what the government does when it tests shit like that isn't what's the temperature that we should go to. It's what's the temperature that is and how long does a thing have to be in there before we're pretty sure we don't have to worry about it anymore. Now, also know this about the government. The government overreacts to everything. If everything that the FDA and the CDC and shit said was was dangerous, was actually dangerous, we would all be dead. Go look at their recommendations for cooking beef. It's stupid. People sit there and eat beef tartare, and it's perfectly acceptable as long as it's handled right. But if we cook it and we don't cook it further, it's dumb. So when when they give you a speck, you can already bet there's a fudge factor built into it. And then they'll add on to it. They'll say, well, you need to freeze it for at least 20 days at 5 Fahrenheit or lower. But you need to wait a couple days because it might take a couple days for the meat itself to get down there. So, like, they even fudge the fudge. So don't sweat it too much. But, again, there are best practices when it comes to handling fish. It doesn't need to be sashimi grade. I am going to have audio on this one that I'm about to play for you guys now. Those of you on the, the audio only will be missing a little bit here. But this is a guy that's basically going to take about $30 worth of steelhead trout from Costco and make about $300 worth of sashimi out of it. And I'm going to go ahead and play that for you now. I'm going to mute my mic and play that, and then we're going to talk about uh, doing this for ourselves and some other things to know about it. From texture, nice bounce. Sushi using Costco steelhead trout. It's not sushi grade, but it is farmed, and it comes from Norway. Because of the way they're raised, this meets the FDA guidelines for food safety. First, the smell test. That's wild. There's no smell. There's some significant miwate on this. It also comes with the skin on. I like to start by cutting a finger notch right there. I really need to get a filleting knife. We're going to be removing the brown parts later. It's insulating fat. Let's divide this into six pieces. Everything on the right side is the loin and the left side is the belly. The loin with some miwate on there and the thin and rich belly side. Let's get these on the curing tray. Nice. First, a thin layer of salt. Make sure to rub it into all six sides. Next, let's do some sugar. sugar. You want to be very generous here. Again, cover all six sides. We're going to be washing this off, so don't worry. If you don't want to use sugar, you can always skip it. The moisture should come out almost immediately, and this will go in the fridge for 45 minutes. Many minutes later. After 45 minutes, the color should deepen, and it should have a waxy texture to it. Here you can wash under the faucet. I like to do a two-stage wash. This will prevent breakage. Make sure to rinse thoroughly. If you don't, the fish will become very salty as it cures in the freezer. Let's give them a final patting dry. Beautiful. I'm saving one belly piece to eat, and let's go ahead and bag the rest. Inside the Ziploc bag, it should be good for about a month. Let's go ahead and label this. For today's flavor test, let's do the belly. Trim off the insulating fat, and let's do thin slices. Looks beautiful. Let's have a taste. 
just on its own. Smooth, buttery, melt in your mouth. Soy sauce, wasabi. Mm. Curing gives it a nice firm texture, nice bounce. So this costs about $20 to make six pieces. If I were to just make rolls, they could easily be two to three hundred dollars. It's from Norway and it's also farm to convince me otherwise. All right. Thank you. This is how I make sushi. All right, guys, I want to uh, real quick show you something else here that I, I've been recommending this product for a long time to go with this. You make your own sashimis or sushis. Now, I did the salmon and also he used steelhead trout. He does it with both. He has a lot of um, videos that he goes through different sources. You can do this with the right cuts of tuna, etc. But the salmon is one of the best bangs for your buck out there. You notice he used sugar in his cure, but he said you don't have to. And I, I would suggest you try it both ways because it's not like you're eating pure sugar when you do this. It adds to the cure. You're washing it off. Only a small amount of it ends up in the meat. And most of the time, if you go to a sushi place and you order salmon, you are probably having exactly what you just looked at. Sometimes they will also do a vinegar wash. He shows you how to do that as well if you check out his channel. But most of the things that you can buy that say wasabi on them are not wasabi. Come in a tube, come in a powder, come in a jar. I don't care. Most of it is horseradish with green dye. The product that you see in front of you right now is made by a company called Sushi Sonic, S-U-S-H-I-S-O-N-I-C. It is 100% real wasabi, and it is freeze-dried. And it is a whole new level of quality if you're going to do your own sushis and sashimis. So I thought I would throw that in there for you as well. And that little tub of it lasts a long time. In some ways, I would say it's a stronger uh, it's a stronger product than uh, what many people say, but it also is less punch you in the totally punch you in the face at the same time. It's kind of a, a weird way to go. And Joe is saying, you know, saltwater fish. And I'll tell you that there is quite a bit to that. And one thing to know about these steelhead trout from Norway, these are being farmed in saltwater. They also have a controlled diet. Uh, so you're eating a, a steelhead trout is a sea run rainbow trout. So rainbow trout, just like their bigger cousin salmon, will generally hatch in a freshwater stream. If that stream has access to the ocean, they'll go out to the ocean and they'll come back in. Now, not everywhere that people fish for trout that are called steelhead trout do they actually get to the ocean. There are some river systems, to my understanding, on like the Great Lakes, and those fish will actually go into the lake as though it was the ocean and then come back up the stream. And obviously that's not a saltwater fish. But saltwater fish in general are far safer to use in raw form than freshwater fish. Freshwater fish have a much higher possibility, even if frozen, of having certain parasites that are not kill that, that could infect you. Let's put it to you that way. There's risk to everything. I don't want to go deep into it right now. Let's go on to something else. Let's talk about cured meats. And I want to start out with something I've talked about many times in the past with you guys, and that's biltong. And, of course, we have uh, uh, House of Biltong is now an MSB vendor. Their product is fantastic. Uh, I've eaten a lot of it. I've, I've used my own discount to get it because I don't always have time to sit down and make Biltong. But Biltong's expensive. It's expensive. And I want to come back around to one of the best pieces of meat to do a lot of things with 
even though it's considered kind of a tougher piece of meat, if you do something like make roast beef out of it, even though if we put it on a deli slicer, that's irrelevant, and we do it the way meat does, and that's the eye of round. Eye of round makes some of the best biltong that you'll ever make, that you will ever make. I'm telling you, biltong is great with a very lean piece of meat, and you want to cut your meat across the grain, but you don't necessarily want to do it when you're making biltong out of it. So the beautiful thing about an eye of round, you trim it, you get the silver skin off it, take your ends and square it up a little bit, take that, put that later for your grind. And again, when you're doing this type of thing, I don't have enough to make it worth grinding right now, and I really don't have anything else I want to do with it. Freeze it, label it, wait till you have a significant quantity, and then grind that. So now we have this nice kind of squared up big hunk of meat. Cut it in half and start cutting long strips out of it. Cut strips that are, you know, bigger around than your thumb. You know, maybe double thumb thickness, maybe a little bit thicker. Biltong is not jerky. We don't want it dry. We want it cured, which means the inside is going to be a little bit wet and a little bit red. So we make our strips. We make biltong the way we always do. And all we need to make traditional South African biltong, some purists that like kind of the modern version of it will get mad at me. You, you're free to use Worcestershire sauce and honey and other flavor enhancers if you want. But it's apple cider vinegar, vinegar, salt, black pepper, and coriander. And the way that we make it, we get the meat ready to go. We salt and pepper and coriander it. And before we do that, we, we hit it with apple cider vinegar. What I usually do, I either put a little bit in a shallow pan, and I kind of just dredge it through like I was dredging something to roll, like frying fish, or I'll take a, a spray bottle and mist it, and then coat it with salt and the other sp spices. And how much salt? Some should get everywhere. It shouldn't be caked on. It should look like if it was a soft pretzel, it was about perfectly salted. That's the best I can. And I like to use a coarser salt for this. You throw it in the refrigerator overnight. You take it out. And if you have an air conditioned room in your house, you can just hang it in an air conditioned room and it will be fine. You don't want to make it at a time of year where flies are a problem. So like right now would be a great time to make it in an air conditioned room. My air conditioned office, I have literally hung Biltong right back here where you see the flag across the entire thing from the, the closet over to the other wall and had venison biltong going all the way across. There are a lot of people that use biltong boxes, which is basically a box with some airflow and a light bulb in it, and it makes them feel better. You don't need it. You don't. And Hunter is saying he used table salt. Don't do that. It was bad. What happens with a fine salt when you make biltong, you add, it's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's that you inevitably use too much because you can't see it. And as soon as it hits the meat, it kind of goes in and it disintegrates. So if you use like a kosher salt or a coarser salt, you have a lot better kind of eyeballs on it and you don't oversalt it. If you want to do a box because it just makes you feel better. I found a guy that builds built tongue boxes out of a Rubbermaid tote, a clear one so you can look at it. Light bulb on the inside, little computer fan on the top of it. Put some holes in it. Put some screen over it so no, nothing can get in there. If that makes you feel good, go ahead and do it. Let me tell you what else you can do, though. Most modern ovens have a fan you can turn on without actually running the oven. Put it in your oven. Take the rack. Put it all the way up on top. Put something underneath it, right, so that it uh, 
so that it can have airflow around it. So hang it from the top oven rack, pull the other oven racks out, put something underneath it. So if it drips, it's not all in your oven. Turn the light on in your oven and close the door. That's all you got to do. Now it's sealed in there. Flies can't get to it. You can feel better about it. There's a light bulb in there. You're good to go. And you'll end up just fine. Now, I'm telling you, I have made this stuff dozens and dozens of times and hung it along that back wall back there. Uh, Hog says, how long does it take to cure? It depends. Generally speaking, at about four days, it's not done all the way yet, and I'm already eating some of it. Right at five to eight days, and this is what to understand, the longer you leave it hang, the drier it will get. So at some point when it kind of it'll kind of feel almost mummified. It's a weird thing. The stick, you know, be a big stick of it, and it looks like it should have some weight to it. And you pick it up, it's very very light. It's very very light. Take a piece of it when you think it's ready. Cuddle the piece off. Look at the inside. Get it to the level of cure you're comfortable with. What you're looking for, and then what you want to do is go ahead and seal it up. Plastic bags, vacuum seal bags, whatever. Put it in the refrigerator. If you have space, go ahead and throw it in the freezer as well. It's fine. And what that'll do is it'll shut down that cure, and so it won't get any drier. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Biltong is delicious just eaten as a snack. But it is such a high-quality product. If you like, like to do charcuterie boards and shit like that, slice that stuff and put it on a charcuterie board. Don't even tell people what it is. They'll lose their brains over it. If anybody tells you, like, I can't eat that. If they eat, like, prosciutto or something, tell them to shut up. Or, you know what? Don't eat it, dude. Don't eat it because then I get to eat it all. It is one of the most delicious things in the world. Moving on. Uh, Barastrama, which I talked about yesterday. And for those who weren't here, Barastrama, like, traditionally is often made with, again, eye of round. You salt the meat. You dry it for a time. You rinse it. Then you put it into a refrigerator with like you sandwich it between two sheet trays and put some weight on it. And it kind of flattens out and you flip it every day for a certain number of days. Then you mix up a variety of seasonings, which is I can't remember them all out of out of out of the clear blue sky. But it's like fen and geek and uh, paprika are the main ones. And then there's salt, garlic, et cetera. You make a paste out of that stuff. And you kind of paint it on and completely coat it. You put a string through it. And you hang that in the refrigerator for about another seven days. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Well, I just learned about this because one of you guys asked me about it. Turns out it is very common to actually make this stuff also out of pork loin. Yep, pork loin. Now, again, people say, oh, my God, trichinosis. And then they eat Capricola. Okay. As long as you're consistent with your bullshit, I guess you can have all the bullshit you want, right? Or prosciutto or something like that. Or uh, what is it, punjali, the stuff that's made out of the jaw, right? It's all cured. None of that stuff's cooked. Now, if you go ahead and cook yours and ruin it, that's fine. But if you're going to sit there and go to a um, like go to a party and they put out like rolled up prosciutto or something like that, you're going to eat that? And you're going to turn around and be afraid to make something out of pork yourself? Again, I guess if you're consistent with your bullshit, you can be as bullshit as you want. Uh, but one of the really cool things about doing that is we're going to go back to what is the price of a whole pork loin from Costco. $2.34 a pound. You're talking about a premium cured pork product. They all in, maybe you have $3 a pound into it. If you went and bought that shit, 
Can you imagine what the cost of that would be? I want to back up to Biltong real quick here. I know some of you are thinking, I know what I'll do. I'll make my Biltong in my Excalibur dehydrator. Do not make Biltong in a dehydrator. You will ruin it. You will ruin it. It is supposed to cure. The center is supposed to be a little bit soft. It is, takes time for this to happen. When you put Biltong in a dehydrator, you dry it out way too fast. The curing process does not get the time to mature the meat. No dehydrators. If there was a setting in the dehydrator that was completely off but the fan ran, that might be okay. Even the guy I gave you the Biltong box for with the fan on it, I don't. I would not use the fan. There's enough convection through there. You don't want it to dry too quickly. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there and go on. So, again, now we can make this pastrama with pork loin. You know what else is a really good deal at Costco, though? They sell a big, giant pack of two pork tenderloins, and they must be from a pretty sizable uh, pig, by the way. I like pork tenderloin, but anybody that's made it knows it's like you go just one second too long with tenderloin of pork, and it gets dry and it gets tough. It's like also one of the most tender things in the world to overdone like that. Okay. What that makes me think of is certain seafood items that I'd rather make ceviche out of than cook. For I like a seared scallop and all that's fine, but to me, scallops are so delicate and so luscious. You hit them with a little lime juice some cilantro and some chili peppers and you make ceviche out of it, and it's like the, the highest use case for the scallop. Pork tenderloin can be made into something called lomo, which is very similar but different, the same but different, man, uh, to uh, bastrama. But we could make bastrama out of the pork tenderloin. I'm actually about to do that because I have one in the freezer, and I'm going to see uh, how it comes out. And... Uh, Anyway, I'm just checking. Okay, I already have that marked. Again, if you guys have questions, please put the word question in all caps like John Dowie has done right here. That's the only question I have queued up right now. So if you have questions for me, go ahead and make sure that you do put that word question. We'll queue it up for Q&A at the end. Um, so I'm going to try making it with pork tenderloin and see how that comes out. And I think you're going to end up with a really buttery cured product by doing that. Um, next up. I want to talk to you about just kind of the basics of cured meat as a whole. There are different ways to cure meat, and there's three primary ways. There is what's known as a wet cure, where you're either in a wet brine or you're injecting a wet brine into things. Traditionally, pastrami is made that way. I'm not going to talk about that today. You can learn about it if you want to. Uh, there is what they call like the bowl method, and that's what you saw yesterday if you saw the uh, pastrama uh, little video that I played. Basically, the guy put salt in a bowl, set the eye of round on top of it, coated the top of it with salt, and put it in the refrigerator. And so there was way more salt than needed to do the job, and the meat was allowed to take up the salt as it kind of saw fit in its biochemistry, right? Or it was organic chemistry, I guess you would say. When we do what's called let me get an equilibrium cure, that means we're going to take and we're going to measure a specific amount of salt, and we might include herbs and things like that. So this is great because we can get those flavors deeper into the meat. We're going to weigh the meat, 
and then we're going to do a calculation and we're going to run anywhere between two and three percent. Some people, the recipes will be two and a half percent of the weight of the meat in salt. We're going to coat that meat. We're going to put it into some kind of a bag, whatever we had the meat on, whatever's left there. We're going to dump it in there. So it's all in there. We're going to seal it up somehow. Could be a Ziploc bag. We push the air out. Could be a vacuum seal bag. And we're going to follow the recipe. We're going to put that in the refrigerator for a specific period of time. And again, the question is, how long? I don't know. It depends on what you're doing. Follow the recipe or the guidance that you're getting until you develop the experience to kind of know for yourself how long to do it. When that's done, we then take that meat out of that bag. We rinse it off and we complete the cure. Usually some way we're hanging it in a refrigerator or a curing cabinet or in the right climate, maybe you're lucky you can hang it from the roof of your garage, depending on where you are and how you do it. I mean, all this stuff started, it was all done in caves. Pretty consistent humidity and temperature throughout the year in a cave, especially if you pick the right time of year, then you really get kind of a, a, a climate moderation in a cave. So there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, but that's kind of the basics of it. And what I got for you guys, I found a really great video. A guy does a cure, talks about how to do it. I have a link in the show notes. I don't want to play it here because it's like 25 minutes long. But I really encourage you to learn more about curing meats. And then to understand that you'll see like these meat curing cabinets and stuff like that. You can buy them pre-made. You can make them yourself. I'm going to tell you a really easy way to make one yourself. If you have access to an extra refrigerator, really easy, not very expensive at all to do. But you don't really need one depending on what you're doing. The smaller the cut of the meat and the shorter the curing time, the more it is a cure that you can just do in a regular refrigerator. So when we look at things like Lomos and pastramas and stuff like that, if you get a really big, I mean, cut it in a few pieces, half a pound to a pound, short curing times using the bowl method or the, um, the equilibrium cure, either one of those you can generally do. When you're starting to do like a whole back leg of an animal or something like the consistency and the time that takes to go. Some of these cures, you know, instead of going a week or two, you're talking about a cure that's going to take six months to a year. In that case, you need a lot of control of the humidity and the temperature. In general, you want the temperature a little warmer than is typical in your refrigerator. And you want the humidity at about 85 percent which is not generally what the humidity in your, your refrigerator is. So how do we do that? Well, there is a product made by Inkbird, and it's really easy to program. I have a video link to, to show you how to program it if you get one. And it's a controller with a sensor, and it has two outlets. You plug the main power into the wall. The, the, uh, the digital device stays on the outside of your refrigerator, freezer, whatever you're using, you've converted. And then so does the power strip. And inside your chamber, again, it could be an old refrigerator. It could be a modified chest freezer that you have put a Johnson control thermostat into to keep it at refrigerator temperatures, what have you. You buy a simple, inexpensive humidifier and a simple, inexpensive dehumidifier. And I don't remember which one, but there's two plugs and they're marked one and two on that device. And you plug the humidifier into one and the dehumidifier in the other, and you set a differential on it within like three, four degree, three to four percent humidity. And what happens is when the humidity gets too high, 
the dehumidifier kicks on and brings it down where it's supposed to be. And if the humidity gets too low, the humidifier kicks on and brings it back up. And that's why you want to set a differential. You don't want it like a 1% differential where they're fighting each other. About three degrees is the agreed upon. Like all the people that built these say about three degrees of variance is the way to go. It's a really easy device to program. And the main reason I brought it up today, and I have a link in the show notes, it's on sale for 34 bucks to buy one of these. So if you think you might do this in the future, I think they normally sell for about $50. It ain't going to go bad. You can put it on a shelf. It might be something you want to pick up. Um, I personally have a really big chest freezer. I mean a massive chest freezer that I built into a 12-keg keezer. A keezer is when you're a home brewer, you use Cornelius kegs, you put your beer in there, you put taps on it. I had four taps on it. It had enough for 12 kegs to go in at one time. Um, I was going to put another set of taps on it, have eight beer on taps at all time. And I really quit drinking beer very much. And so it's just after I've tried to barter the damn thing and it's huge. I mean, it's a massive chest freezer and nobody's wanted it. So what I think I'm going to do is barter all the stuff to make the keyser, the manifolds, the kegs, all that shit and keep it. And I'm going to turn that thing into a meat curing cabinet, which will be sick. Awesome. But I ain't doing that till like, that's going to be a winter project. I don't have time for it right now. Um, but that'll be something I'll do more and more with. But you don't have to go that route if you're doing smaller pieces, whole muscle, short-term cures, like all the stuff that we're talking about today. And let's talk a little bit about some of the concerns when you're doing this where people start using curing salts and stuff like that. There is a lot higher potential to have bacterial infections and have cures go wrong when we start making ground up things like sausages, because it's what I talked about yesterday, where the outside is becoming the inside. Yeah. And when that happens, there's bacteria on the outside of me. There's bacteria on the outside of everything right here in my hand right now is a remote control for my little window unit air conditioner. I keep in my office. I guarantee you, if I swab this right now and put it on a, an agriculture and see what's on it. There's bacteria on there. There's bacteria on your hands. There's bacteria on your face. There's bacteria on your body. Most of it is benign to humans. Some of it is dangerous. When you have bacteria on the outside of a cured meat and you get that salt on the outside, you're going to freaking kill the bacteria. The salt will kill it dead. All right. You have nothing to worry about. If you don't get enough salt inside of a product that went through a grinder, and you're doing a dry cure instead of a cook, right? Then you have much more potential. Your, your practices have to be a lot better, and you really want to go a long time. You want to get uh, a fermentation going with beneficial bacterium. There's actually things you can buy to basically create a bloom of that stuff, and you want something like one of these, uh, these coolers that we're talking about, a, a, a curing cabinet, if you're going to do that. When you do a whole muscle, there's no bacteria inside the meat. It's only the part that's been exposed. So it's much more forgiving. And again, follow instructions, follow procedures, but don't be afraid of it. Because the next thing I want to talk about is this fear that people have of trichinosis. And I'm going to bring up something for you that should just in of itself really make people stop being so afraid of this. This graph that I have right here, and unfortunately it doesn't blow up, is 
reported cases of trichinosis in the United States broken down into years. From 1975 to 1981, there were 750 cases of trichinosis. Okay? That's over the entire period, 75 to 81. So six years, there were 750 cases of trichinosis that were traced back to pork products in the United States. There was about 200 with non-pork products, and there was about 150-ish that were unknown. As you can see, the graph declines dramatically. If you look right here between 2008 and 2010, there's a little tiny bar down there that actually is about like five cases of trichinosis in the United States traced to pork products over that time. A couple things to know. When they say pork, they mean all pork. All pork. So that means pastured pork. That means a pig that somebody shot. It's not just pig out of the domestic system where it's for production and the animals are fed grain and, and what have you. So that's pretty damn low as it is. You'll also notice non-pork product. It's gotten very low because people are more aware, but that's kind of a spike compared to the previous two cycles. That's because 30 people got it at one location. They ate a damn near raw black bear that was shot in Northern California. They had like a barbecue and they had undercooked black bear. There is actually multiple species of trichinosis worms, multiple species. And it's important to understand that the one that infects pigs is different than the one that infects bears. And the rate in pigs is pretty low in the south. So they did another experiment where they, they, uh, they got a shit ton of pigs, like a thousand pigs that they tested, wild pigs in Texas. Exactly zero had trichinosis. These are wild pigs, zero. They tested them in North Carolina mountains, and it was about 13%. For wild pork. So you really got to think when you're using wild pork here. Here's the other side of this, though. Bears have, because of their diets, have tremendously high rates. So it's generally considered by food safety people and what have you. If it's bear meat, you should just assume it has trichinosis. Just assume it's infected. It needs to be cooked at proper temperatures, etc. It needs to be cooked to a somewhat higher temperature. And sticking it in the freezer at 5 degrees Fahrenheit for 20, for 20 days doesn't work. Now, when I first heard that, I'm like, this is bullshit government again. Like, our food's safe and the wild food's not. Until I learned, again, multiple species of this roundworm that causes trichinosis, and the one that infects bears is much harder to kill with, with cold. So if you're worried about pork, 20 days or more in the freezer, and you are good, and the odds that you're going to get trichinosis are incredibly low anyway, and I was brought up to believe, like, there was, like, a fear campaign in the 70s and 80s about this shit. You were going to die if your poor trough wasn't nuclearized, right? And I thought, like, trichinosis was a death sense. Most people get trichinosis, they, their body fights it off, and it, it goes away. It can be really bad if you get it, like, in your heart or your eye or something like that. Because what it is is these little roundworms form cysts in the muscle. So if you get a lot of it or you get it in the wrong place or you're susceptible to it, it can be really bad. No one's died of this shit in decades. Almost nobody dies of this shit, though. It's not something you want. But, it, you know, if you look at the fact that we eat tens of millions of pigs every year in this country and we eat tens of millions of pounds of cured pork that's not cooked. And you're talking about you are more likely to get eaten by a shark than get trichinosis. If you don't want to do it, don't do it, but don't do it just out of fear. You know, don't not do it just out of fear.
Moving on, let's talk about sausage making. Now, again, I'm not talking about dry cured sausages here or uncooked sausages because that's a level that I, I, I can't go to today, and I've honestly never done it. Uh, I've certainly never done it without curing salts. I've done some sausages that are cured sausages that I've used curing salts in. I'm trying to get away from that. Again, it's not that I'm afraid of it. It's just I don't want to use a thing I don't need. But I'm talking about is plain old sausages that are going to be cooked, that are going to be smoked or whatever. It's actually one of the easier things to do. It really is. And it is a great thing to learn how to do because then all of the stuff we're talking about where you end up with all this trim, it's not just ground meat. I think most people would rather have a really good sausage than a burger, especially like a pork burger or something like that. Um, so I want to tell you why I love making sausage and kind of inspire you to maybe start making some yourself. Number one, you control everything that goes in it. My wife often was like, I don't like sausage. I'm like, no, you like sausage. You don't like this sausage. You can't tell me what I like. Yes, I can. Do you like meat? Yes. Do you like herbs and seasoning and salt? Yes. Okay, then you like sausage. It's just a matter of what goes into the sausage. So if you want to do a chicken and apple or a pork and apple, you can do that. If you want to do a pork, apple, and jalapeno sausage, which, by the way, is badass, you can do that. You can do anything you want, and I love having that total control. My way that I make sausage is very traditional in that I do not take a bunch of ground meat pour a bunch of salt and seasoning in it and mix that up and then make sausage. I cube my meat. I weigh it out. I figure out how much of all my ingredients I want. And I sprinkle it all over my cubes and I mix the cubes up. I set that in the refrigerator for at least 24 hours. And I let the meat begin to absorb and exchange and do that kind of equilibrium thing without sealing it up for a 24-hour period. Then the day I'm going to make the sausage, I take that tub and I throw it in the freezer. Always semi-freeze meat before you grind it until it starts to feel kind of hard. Then I put it through the grinder and then I stuff it into sausage casings if I'm not doing like a breakfast sausage. I like natural casings. I actually prefer a sausage made with natural casings. They're kind of a pain in the ass to work with, though. They don't gross me out or they're just kind of a pain in the ass. The collagen... Uh, man-made casings are fantastic and they're stupid easy and you put them on the stuffer tube and when you get the last sausage out you cut it and you put it away until you need it again and so you don't end up like I need to use this stuff up or keep it moist or whatever it's just it's just you put it in the cabinet right so I love that I love that about them again it's not as good a product to me but they come in whatever size you can get them smoked you can get them clear what have you it's totally edible there's no reason not to use them. And to me, it's just an easy button. The other thing I'll tell you, if you want to get into sausage, buy yourself a sausage stuffer. Aaron right now is saying meat grinder and sausage attachments for my KitchenAid is going on my Christmas list. I highly advise you, if you're going to make you know more than a pound or two at a time especially, Get a good grinder like the STX TurboForce grinder that's on my website at T-SPAS. It's $150, and it's better than most grinders that are $250, $300. The grinder for the KitchenAid is not terrible. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's okay. Sausage stuffing with a grinder with the blade removed blows. It sucks. 
a Lem five pound stuffer. It's a manual one. Works beautifully. It works beautifully. It's not expensive. And people are like, well, I get a twenty pound. Even if you're gonna make twenty pounds of sausage, do you know how quick it is to just open the stuffer and throw another five pounds of meat in it? It's no big deal. I really, really encourage you if you want to get into making sausage to pick up a lem stuffer, L-E-M, lem stuffer, and you can find them on uh, Amazon. And please go through T-Spaz if you do that. Uh, next, I want to tell just a little bit about cold smoking today. Not going to really give you any um, any specific recipes or anything, but I do want to tell you a lot of you have everything you need to do to cold smoke right now without building a smokehouse and an offset pit and all kinds of stuff like that. If you have a pellet smoker tube and if you cook outside on the grill, you should, okay, uh, and you take your grill and you don't put anything directly over the tube or up against the tube where there's heat off of it and you light your pellet smoker and you put food on your grill, you have a cold smoker. See how simple that is? If you wanted to build something a little more organized, I mean, basically an old cabinet or you fill a box out of plywood or whatever uh, with a metal liner in the bottom for that thing to sit in, and you've got a cold smoker. So a pellet tube makes a great cold smoker. The most of them, like the longest you can get one to run is about eight hours and need to be refilled. So if you're smoking something for like a couple days, you're going to have to make sure that you reset it before you go to bed. That's the one downside. I've seen some of the stuff that's supposed to work for like 18 hours or whatever that uses sawdust. Every review I've read on them is miserable. I haven't found anybody that's really happy with them. And what they end up doing is using pellets in them. So I, I'm just going to stick with the pellet tubes that are designed for pellets. Uh, but I'm going to tell you right now, cold smoking is a wonderful thing. There's a lot you can do with it. One of the things we'll do, if we're going to do a roast, like like we're going to do like a brisket or a pork shoulder or something like that, a lot of times what I'll do, I'll cold smoke that sucker for like eight hours. I'll season it up, you know. I'll put it on the grill. I'll cold smoke it for eight hours. Then I'll package it, and then I'll sous vide it. And it is I, – I did brisket for people last year at the workshop that way, and everybody loved it. Absolutely a fantastic way to do things. Another cool hack, you can really elevate cheeses with cold smoking. Again, just a pellet smoker, throw the cheese on the grill. Uh, no heat, and you'll melt it. Uh, do this at a cooler time of the year because, like, just last week, if I put cheese in my grill, no smoke, whatever, and closed the lid, if I would have came back in an hour, it would have been melting because it was 108 degrees last week was the average high temperature. So you do it in the fall, do it in the winter, do it in early spring, cold smoke cheese. Now, let me tell you the secret with cold smoking cheese, guys. Cold smoke the cheese, take the cheese, put it in a vacuum seal bag, vacuum seal it, throw it in the refrigerator, and forget about it for two weeks. If you eat it right away, you have like this intense, over-the-top smoke on the outside, and it really doesn't seem to have much penetration to the inside. It's not very appealing. It's like too much and too little at the same time. When it sits in that bag in the refrigerator for a couple of weeks, it kind of equalizes, and you can just take a plain old block of like aged cheddar, and it's a totally new experience, especially, again, I'm a guy, I like to do cheese boards, meat boards, and things like that. So some biltong, some capricola, some smoked cheese, you see where I'm going with that. And again, now we're eating this elevated level for less money. Um, final thoughts. I, I do want to say one more thing about, since we ended with cured meats and everybody always gets, 
a little bit anxious about this, whether it's and right now, Hug is, is saying, I want to cold smoke salmon. Yeah, me too. I love me some smoked salmon. I, I, again, I, I'm salmon's one of those fish that as long as you've sourced it properly, in many ways, I'd rather do a cure, a cold smoke, just about anything other than cook it. Because it, it, it just kind of ruins what makes it so wonderful. Cold smoked salmon, like a Nova Lox or something too, just fantastic. So cold smoking fish, curing fish, making these cures like Bastrama and, and, and what have you, and Capricola and all these wonderful Italian meats and stuff that people pay 20, 30 bucks for, but then they're afraid to make it themselves. As though there's some special magic voodoo that makes it safe because you bought it in a package. Man has been using salt to cure meat since man figured out that salt and time and the right temperature cured meat. We've made everything beef jerky to bill tongue to all of these really great things. And it's not like there is no risk at all. Okay. It's not like there is no risk at all, but there's risk in everything that we do. And if it was as dangerous as it's made out to be to cure your own meats, none of us would be here because the human race would have died off already. It would have died off already. You know, I, everybody I knew up in Pennsylvania made different cured meats using cold smoke or no smoke at all with, with venison all the time. That's wild meat. Yes. That's why it's really, really good. So don't be afraid to do this. Um, again, Whenever you're doing something for the first time, use a reliable source for your ingredients, your time, your procedure, and your weights, just like canning food, just like canning food, or just like doing fermented vegetables or what have you. But don't be afraid of it. My final thought is I want you to think about everything we talked about today. We talked about, you know, just getting a giant pork loin and cutting it up. We talked about turning chicken thighs into freaking a wing substitute. Uh, for a third of the money, a quarter of the money, and actually having a better product. We talked about things like making biltong out of an eye of round that we can get for three bucks and change, right, or four bucks and change. We talked about making bastrama. We talked about curing meats a variety of ways. We talked about getting big, cheap pork shoulder for two twenty four a pound and making uh, chops and steaks and sausage and grind and chili meat out of it and all other types of things, right? And eating for less money, just breaking down a chicken and basically getting three quarters of the bird for free. All of these things that we can do. Think of this like a game. We're going into a world right now where everything, as bad as it is, is going to get worse. No, I didn't say it would maybe get worse. You guys know I've done some pretty critical analysis of the economy recently, and I'm telling you, this is bad shit. On top of all of it, there's literally a war on meat. They want you to eat the bugs and be happy and feed on the seed oils and get in the pot and rent your house and rent your car and own nothing and be happy. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. As much as I love grass-fed beef, I'll... I'll eat regular beef as well, especially good quality beef that I process myself so I know how it was handled. I'm not getting in the pod. I am not eating sea bugs. And I am not paying 20 freaking dollars a pound for some freaking roast beef. I'm not doing it. And so my game, my game now is how much can I get over on the system? 
right? We talk about status jujitsu. How about, you know, culinary jujitsu? How much can I get over on? Can I sit down and eat a meal that if I went and had somebody do the work for me, that even cooking at home would have been 20 or 30 bucks? And can I do it for five to seven dollars? And every time I do that, I get to eat that way and I get to keep my money. Now, to me, there's a hell of a lot to be said for that. And I like it. I like feeling that I got over on the system because I watched a YouTube video that showed me how to take a Sierra steak out of a shoulder, uh, uh, a shoulder clod. Or how to take a Denver steak out of a chuck roll. Or how to make London broils out of a top round. Or, oh, wait a minute, top round, all that lean beef. Boy, there's a bunch of meat back there on the ass end of the cow on that top round. You know what it makes really good? Bill Tom. You know what else it would probably really make good? Any kind of cured beef, like a pastrama. Cut the shape you want and then realize, again, we always talk about cutting meat across the grain, but when we're doing a cured meat, it, we generally speaking, most cured meats, if you look at how they're designed, they go long grain across the length, and then after it's cured, we cut across the grain, again, with a sharp knife or a knife, a deli slicer. I want you guys... I want you guys to think, how can I game this freaking system? How can I gain this freaking system? So we do have a few questions here that I want to hit before I give you our item of the day, which, by the way, is another knife that we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, John Dowie is asking, when grinding beef, what is the trick to get it to a point where burger actually sticks together? I've heard of certain point of emulsification. I'm not sure, though. Okay. So in general, I have no problem with a mix that's like an 80-20 or an 85-15 sticking together, just grinding it, just grinding it. The coarser the grind, the more you'll struggle with that. If you're going to mix burger and you want to mix it to the point where it kind of starts to emulsify as though you were going to make sausage and you want it to stay together for you, Start mixing it, and you'll get to a point where fat starts to actually kind of stick to your fingers. Like some of the fat from the heat in your body begins to melt a little bit. It begins to kind of wrap itself around the protein fibers, and it'll stick to your fingers. When we used to make sausage, and I was the kid that had to mix the freaking sausage because it was cold as shit and nobody wanted to do it, and I would mix up like the deer sausage, and we would use about 20% uh, pork butt, to 80% venison to make our venison sausage. And you'd mix it until you'd start to see the seasonings and you'd start to see the fat begin to cling to your fingers. Now, if you're using gloves, you kind of got to eyeball it because it doesn't really stick to the gloves. But if you barehand it, which is what I always did, that's that's one way that you'll know. You can kind of just also kind of feel it when you, when you make a patty. Just make a test patty out of it and kind of start to bend it. And when it doesn't immediately crack, you've gone far enough. The other thing that you can do if you're having issues with burgers sticking together is throw an egg in the mix. Just just whisk up an egg, throw it in with your ground beef, give it a little, and that's even ground beef that you buy from the store. And that will create, and if you don't, if you want it to be just more cling, and you know, I don't ever taste the flavoring, but some people claim they can. Separate two eggs, use the yolks for something else, and just use egg whites as a binder. If you really, really have a problem with they're not staying together. I think you got a meat quality issue, John, but breadcrumbs will also bind. And if you don't want breadcrumbs, which we don't, uh, pork rind crumbs. 
So the pork rind breadcrumbs, teaspoon, tablespoon of that in there, and you really get a good binder. I did sliders last year at the workshop, and that's what we used as a binder in those. We did a jalapeno, bacon, buffalo, ground buffalo slider last year, and we used uh, the breadcrumbs to keep a little bit more binding to something like that because we had to cook so damn many of them. Joe says, uh, brand of vac sealer bags, not all keep their seal. Avid Armor, they're available at tspaz.com. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and put vacuum seal bags in, you'll find a product made by Avid Armor. They are the best bags for the money that you can get. I don't use them anymore because I don't use my vac sealer anymore. I, I purchased a chamber vac sealer. The best bags you can get for a chamber vac sealer cost like half of what good bags for a regular vacuum sealer cost because they're, they're smooth. Vacuum seal bags have those little grooves in them, so when they're sucking the air out of them, there's air channels for that to get out. In my opinion, a chamber vac will pay for itself in about a year to a year and a half if you use it a lot, just on what you'll save on bags, even though they're like a thousand bucks versus, you know, a couple hundred in that range. If you have a really cheap vacuum sealer, you're going to end up throwing it away once a year. And sometimes the, the bag problem is not really a bag problem. It's a vacuum sealer problem. The other thing with vacuum seal bags is, as many of you know, if you get any moisture in the seal, if there's any moisture on the food that you're sealing up and it gets pulled up to where that seal is, it'll seal. And sometimes it seems like it's sealed. You see a little bit of moisture. You're like, oh, it must have worked. You put it in the refrigerator and whoops, it's all screwed up the next day when you look at it. Take your vacuum seal bags. Put your food in it. Don't seal it. Throw it in the freezer for a couple hours until the food firms up and the moisture on the outside of the food is frozen. Then seal it. And you'll get around that as well. The other thing is sometimes it's just that there's some sharp, pointy thing, a piece of bone, uh, some piece of that meat that's kind of sticking up, and it takes the tiniest little pinprick hole. And uh, if I have a seal, a seal fail, I've always tried to find it. Because sometimes, like, if you just put it in another bag and seal it, it'll happen again. Right? And it's like, it's like freaking some kind of, like, why won't you? It is like this little thing. But if you find it and you take something like, you know, the back of a spoon and you kind of smash it down before you put it in a second bag, it, it will hold for you. And, and John Dowie is also asking, please go into more into why budget ground beef is not good. Number one is it is highly likely that within any of your budget big tubes of ground beef, you're going to be dealing with something called pink slime. Pink slime is where they take all of this little tidbits of meat left on the bone and shit, and it's all scraped off. And this is all nasty, bacterially infested shit. And they run it through a machine that looks an awful lot like a washing machine that spins it. They treat it with chemicals. And then they mixed it back in, and then they put it in this giant machine, and it's oozed out and spooged into that big giant tube of yours. It's also the simply the lowest quality trim that's available. Again, no butcher who knows where that meat comes from, when they buy ground meat, wants that tube meat. They want store ground, or they buy their own, they take their own pieces home, and they grind them at home. Nobody that knows what's going on really wants to eat that shit. Uh, K-Monk has a question. Is it possible 
to regrind beef to add fat and flavor. Sort of. Sort of. You wouldn't want to regrind it. But let's say that you got some meat and you ground it and it was leaner than you'd like. If you take that meat and you freeze it and you label it so you remember, and later you, 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 come, you, you come to the point where you have some fat available and you do some fat grinding, and when you take that meat out, you take the fat and you mix it together before you cook it, it's fine. It's fine. It would be better if the fat was with the meat when you grind it. Remember, a grinder is going to do some level of mixing itself. You think about what's happening in there. So it's better to have your fat and your lean together when you grind it. You can definitely pitch uh, fat in with your grind. In fact, I mentioned when I was a kid, we used to make deer sausage. We would get pork shoulder and we would mix it at 20% of the deer. I didn't know any of the shit about making sausage I told you today back then. And neither did my uncle and neither did my grandfather and neither did my dad. So what do we do? We ground the deer meat, went down to the grocery store and we said we had, you know, 40 pounds of deer meat. We need 20%. So it's two pounds. We need eight pounds of the fattiest freaking pork shoulder you got. Now, I don't want to take it home and grind it. I already just grinded my ass off. Go to the meat counter. Here's, you know, whatever amount of pork butt. Can I get this ground up, please? And they would grind it up for us and we would take it home and mix it all together. And it was just fine. It's just more work. It's just more work. So what would I do today? What I would do today is I would get my, if I'm doing venison and I'm either using beef fat or pork fat, I would cut everything up together and I would mix it as chunk. I would season it however I'm going to season it. If it's just burger, I'm not going to season it really at all. Season it when I cook it. And I'm going to grind it in unison and it's going to reduce the amount of mixing. One of the things I think I'm going to spoil myself with going into this winter, I think I'm going to buy a meat mixer. I really don't enjoy mixing meat. I don't think it's nasty. I don't mind having the fat on my hands or anything like I was talking about. It's just freaking cold and it hurts my fingers and I'm older now and I don't want to do it. And so I probably will buy a meat mixer. One thing I'll caution you with, if you get a meat mixer, don't overmix. You can emulsify stuff to the point where it's really not that great. You just want that combination to happen where you start to merge kind of fat and protein together. It doesn't take long before you figure out kind of what you're looking for uh, and it gets pretty easy to do. I think that wraps up the show for the day and I don't see any more questions. If any come in while we're finishing up, I'll try to answer them if I have time. But what I wanted to show you today is yesterday I brought you the eight inch Victor Knox breaking knife. Today I'm brought bringing you the six inch semi stiff Victor Knox boning knife. You put those two knives together and all the stuff that we talked about from big shoulder roasts all the way down to fine trimming, you have everything you need. You can use other knives, but this, again, is the knife that you will see more professional cutters using than any other knife, these two knives. John Dowie, who's here with us, did me a solid day, and he told me right when we were starting that apparently the TSP effect is happening, and this knife was down to only 19 left in stock. There was no inventory alert this morning when I put this out. I found this product on sale for, I think, $21 or $22, something like that. And it's normally significantly more. And so I linked to the vendor that had it on sale. There's more than one vendor on Amazon that has it on sale. There is another vendor that has it for like $27. It's like five bucks more. So I put in a, a, a PS at the bottom 
if it's sold out and you want one, you're willing to spend another five bucks for it, there's a link where you can wait for that other vendor to come back in stock if they do. A lot of times these third-party vendors, when something goes out of stock, it can be a very long time. And don't be surprised if this happens. If that dude gets down to where he has one in inventory and he doesn't want to lose his position in the search rankings on Amazon, he might put it up to like $100 or something stupid so nobody will buy it. Because if you're an Amazon seller, if you're an Amazon seller and your inventory goes to zero, you lose your listing. And that sucks. So that if you ever see something that's like a ridiculous price, not always, but that's often what it is. Anyway, this is a fantastic knife. Most of the stuff we talked about today, you wouldn't even want a breaking knife for. This is all that you would need. Breaking down a pork loin, cutting up a chicken. This is the knife to have. When I showed you the sushi guy, and he said, I need to get a fillet knife. Fillet knives are great, and I would rather use a flexible fillet knife for taking the skin off the back of a salmon fillet, but this will work beautifully. It'll work beautifully. Semi-stiff, I have a video in the write-up for you that explains why, but I'll give you a very brief explanation. If I have flexible, that means that the blade flexes really easily, like an inexpensive fillet knife, and that means when I'm doing some work sometimes, maybe that blade is flexing and I don't realize it, I don't really know where the tip is. With the semi-stiff, unless I put some serious pressure on it, Wherever I have my thumb on that knife like that, I know that tip is exactly six inches away and exactly lined up with it. So it makes a much more precision cut. A full, they also make them in a stiff, fully stiff. To me, I want some flex. So it's kind of Goldilocks. Anyway, check these things out and realize again what they're for. This is a knife for trimming and boning meat. This is not a knife for cutting up garlic and shit like that. These curves on these knives are great when they're used for what they're used for. Butcher knives, breaking knives, etc. This kind of symmetric curve is great for that application. This is not a knife you really want to have your hand anywhere you can accidentally poke yourself because you're not poking yourself now. You're cutting yourself because that helps what blade. The knife I use probably more in my kitchen than any other knife is this little Cutco right here. It's a little kind of mini Santuco Cutco straight blade chopping garlic, chopping veg, cutting up peppers. I have a bunch of chef's knives and other Santokos and stuff. I've got Shun, Cutco, a couple different brands. Uh, I use them all. Usually if I'm not using this one, it's dirty and I don't want to clean it. It's dull and I don't want to sharpen it because it's kind of the perfect size for doing that chopping work and things like that. Nice straight blade. So make sure when you hear me recommending these knives, you know what I'm recommending these knives from Victor Knox for. Cutting and trimming and breaking down meat cuts. That's what they're for. And if you start trying to use this knife to cut peppers or something, unless your knife skills are really great, there's a very high probability that you are going to cut yourself. Real quick, Zone 6, Eric has one more question for me. Um, are you buying a 20 or 40 pound mixer? Probably 20. Uh, I don't I don't like to spend like all weekend making one batch of sausage. I tend to make five to 15 pounds of sausage at a time. So I'll probably, you know, I haven't decided what I'm going to buy or, or what yet. Uh, Hoggis says knife is sold out by Prudent Danish. Uh, so I think that might've been who I recommended. So maybe those 19 are gone now. So you can wait for it to come back in stock. Or if you go down in the PS on the write up, uh, and there's a link in the video notes too, where you can find this knife. I think it's totally worth $27. I just try to get you the best deal you can. Another note, another note. I mentioned yesterday, 
Victorinox also make these with a rosewood handle. They're really much prettier knife. I don't think they work any better. I like the rubber handle. It gets kind of sticky when you get some blood and stuff on your hands. It's less likely to slip. So I like that. But if you like the rosewood, you can get it. Whenever I recommend something like this, though, you know, kind of a name brand product, always go ahead and run a search on Amazon once you're off T-Spaz. Because if somebody's selling it for less, save money. And, you like, things go in and out of sale. People make price adjustments all the time. That's a good hack to know about Amazon. And the other thing you'll notice is a lot of times the, the third-party vendors that are selling these for less money, you're going to wait a week to get it. So you have to decide, do I want to pay 5 bucks and get it more and get it tomorrow, or do I not care when it comes to next week? It, it, that's up to you. And as always, kitchens need a honing steel. Please get a honing steel. There's a link in the write-up as well for a really great one by a company called Utopia Kitchen because I'm not paying Victor Knox the price of a knife for a honing steel because it's just not worth it. Anyway, with that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I hope you take something out of it and put it into practice. I don't expect that anybody out there is going to do all the stuff we talked about today. Pick two or three things. Develop the skill. Develop the procedure. Develop the knowledge. Stock the freezer. Save money. Eat better. Do not live in the pod. Do not eat the bugs. I promise you. I'd rather have grass-fed beef than conventional beef, but I'd rather have conventional beef than a freaking locust. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out to just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way